Section 7 of Myths of Babylon and Assyria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Myths of Babylon and Assyria by Donald Alexander Mackenzie. Chapter 6. Wars of the City-States of Sumer and Akkad, Part 1. When the curtain rises to reveal the drama of Babylonian civilization, we find that we have missed the first act and its many fascinating scenes. Sumerians and Akkadians come and go, but it is not always possible to distinguish between them, although most Semites are recognizable by their flowing beards, prominent noses, and long robes, some have so closely imitated the Sumerians as to suffer almost complete loss of identity. It is noticeable that in the north, the Akkadians are more Semitic than their contemporaries in the south, but it is difficult at times to say whether a city is controlled by the descendants of the indigenous people or those of later settlers. Dynasties rise and fall, and, as in Egypt at times, the progress of fragmentary narrative is interrupted by a sudden change of scene, ere we have properly grasped the situation and realized its significance. What we know for certain is that civilization is well advanced. Both in the north and the south, there are many organized and independent city-states, and not unfrequently these wage war one against another. Occasionally ambitious rulers tower among their fellows, conduct vigorous military campaigns, and become overlords of wide districts. As a rule, a subjugated monarch, who has perforce to acknowledge the suzerainty of a powerful king, is allowed to remain in a state of semi-independence, on condition that he pays a heavy annual tribute of grain. His own laws continue in force, and the city deities remain supreme, although recognition may also be given to the deities of his conqueror. He styles himself a patesi, a priest-king, or more literally, servant of the chief deity. But as an independent monarch may also be a pious patesi, it does not always follow when a ruler is referred to by that title, he is necessarily less powerful than his neighbors. When the historical narrative begins, Akkad includes the cities of Babylon, Kutha, Kish, Akkad, and Sippar and north of Babylonia proper is Semitic Opus. Among the cities of Sumer were Eridu, Ur, Lagash, Larsa, Erik, Surupak, and probably Nippur, which was situated on the border. On the north, Assyria was yet in the making, and shrouded in obscurity. A vague but vast area, above hit on the Euphrates and extending to the Syrian coast, was known as the land of the Amorites, the fish-shaped Babylonian valley, lying between the rivers, where walled towns were surrounded by green fields and numerous canals flashed in the sunshine, was bounded on the west by the bleak wastes of the Arabian desert, where during the dry season the rocks branded the body, and occasional sandstorms swept in blinding folds toward the plain of Shinar, Sumer, like demon hosts who sought to destroy the world. To the east, the skyline was fretted by the Persian highlands, and amidst the southern mountains dwelt the fierce Elamites, 
the hereditary enemies of the Sumers, although a people apparently of the same origin. Like the Nubians and the Libyans, who kept watchful eyes on Egypt, the Elamites seemed ever to be hovering on the eastern frontier of Sumeria, longing for an opportunity to raid and plunder. The capital of the Elamites was the city of Susa, where excavations have revealed traces of an independent civilization, which reaches back to an early period in the late Stone Age. Susa is referred to in the Old Testament, the words of Nehemiah, I was in Shushan the palace. An Assyrian plan of the city shows it occupying a strategic position at a bend of the Sha'ur River, which afforded protection against Sumerian attacks from the west, while a canal curved round its northern and eastern sides, so that Susa was completely surrounded by water. Fortifications had been erected on the river and canal banks, and between these and the high city walls were thick clumps of trees. That the kings of Elam imitated the splendors of Babylonian courts in the later days of Esther and Haman and Mordecai is made evident by the biblical references to the gorgeous palace, which had white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. Beyond Elam were the plains, plateaus, and grassy steppes, occupied by the Medes and other peoples of Aryan speech. Cultural influences came and went, like spring winds, between the various ancient communities. For ten long centuries, Sumer and Akkad flourished and prospered, ere we meet with the great Hammurabi, whose name has now become almost as familiar as that of Julius Caesar. But our knowledge of the leading historical events of this vast period is exceedingly fragmentary. The Sumerians were not like the later Assyrians or their Egyptian contemporaries, a people with a passion for history. When inscriptions were composed and cut on stone or impressed upon clay tablets and bricks, the kings selected as a general rule to record pious deeds rather than to celebrate their victories and conquests. Indeed, the average monarch had a temperament resembling that of Keats, who declared, The silver flow of heroes' tears, the swoon of Imogen, fair pastorella in the bandit's den, are things to brood on with more ardency than the death day of empires. The Sumerian king was emotionally religious, as the great English poet was emotionally poetical. The tears of Ishtar for Tammuz, and the afflictions endured by the goddess imprisoned in Hades, to which she had descended for love of her slain husband, seem to have concerned the royal recorder to a greater degree than the memories of political upheavals and the social changes which passed over the land, like the seasons which alternately brought greenness and gold, barrenness and flood. City chronicles, as a rule, are but indices of obscure events, to which meager references were sometimes also made on mace heads, vases, tablets, stelae, and sculpture monoliths. Consequently, present-day excavators and students have often reason to be grateful that the habit likewise obtained of inscribing on bricks in buildings and the stone sockets of doors the names of kings and others. These records rendered obscure periods faintly articulate and are indispensable for comparative purposes. Historical clues are also obtained from lists of year names. Each city king named a year in celebration of a great event. 
his own succession to the throne, the erection of a new temple or of a city wall, or mayhap, the defeat of an invading army from a rival state. Sometimes, too, a monarch gave the name of his father in an official inscription, or happily mentioned several ancestors. Another may be found to have made an illuminating statement regarding a predecessor, who centuries previously erected the particular temple that he himself has piously restored. A reckoning of this kind, however, cannot always be regarded as absolutely correct. It must be compared with and tested by other records, for in these ancient days, calculations were not unfrequently based on doubtful inscriptions, or mere oral traditions, perhaps. Nor can implicit trust be placed on every reference to historical events, for the memory deeds of great rulers were not always unassociated with persistent and cumulative myths. It must be recognized, therefore, that even portions of the data, which had of late been sifted and systematized by Oriental scholars in Europe, may yet have to be subjected to revision. Many interesting and important discoveries, which will throw fresh light on this fascinating early period, remain to be made in that ancient and deserted land, which still lies under the curse of the Hebrew prophet, who exclaimed, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate homes, and dragons in their pleasant palaces. The curtain rises, as has been indicated, after civilization had been well advanced. To begin with, our interests abide with a cad, and during a period dated approximately between 3000 BC and 2800 BC, when Egypt was already a united kingdom, and the Cretans were at the dawn of the first early Minoan period, and beginning to use bronze. In Kish, Sumerian and Akkadian elements were apparently blended, and the city was the center of a powerful and independent government. After years had fluttered by dimly, and with them the shadow shapes of vigorous rulers, it is found that Kish came under the sway of the pronouncedly Semitic city of Opus, which was situated farthest north, and on the western bank of the river Tigris. A century elapsed ere Kish again threw off the oppressor's yoke, and renewed the strength of its youth. The city of Kish was one of the many ancient centers of goddess worship. The great mother appears to have been the Sumerian Bau, whose chief seat was at Lagash. If tradition is to be relied upon, Kish owed his existence to that notable lady, Queen Azag Bau. After floating legends gathered round her memory as they have often gathered round the memories of famous men, like Sargon of Akkad, Alexander the Great, and Theodoric the Goth, who became Emperor of Rome, it is probable that the Queen was a prominent historical personage. She was reputed to have been of humble origin, and to have first achieved popularity and influence as the keeper of a wine shop. Although no reference survives to indicate that she was believed to be of miraculous birth, the Chronicle of Kish gravely credits her with a prolonged and apparently prosperous reign of a hundred years. 
Her son, who succeeded her, sat on the throne for a quarter of a century. These calculations are certainly remarkable. If the queen Azag Bao founded Kish when she was only twenty, and gave birth to the future ruler in her fiftieth year, he must have been an elderly gentleman of seventy when he began to reign. When it is found further that the dynasty in which mother and son flourished was supposed to have lasted for 586 years, divided between eight rulers, one of whom reigned for only three years, two for six, and two for eleven, it becomes evident that the historian of Kish cannot be absolutely relied upon in detail. It seems evident that the memory of this lady of forceful character, who flourished about 1300 years before the rise of Queen Hatshepsut of Egypt, has overshadowed the doubtful annals of ancient Kish at a period when Sumerian and Semite were striving in the various states to achieve political ascendancy. Meanwhile, the purely Sumerian city of Lagash has similarly grown powerful and aggressive. For a time, it acknowledged the suzerainty of Kish, but ultimately it threw off the oppressor's yoke and asserted its independence. The cumulative effects of a succession of energetic rulers elevated Lagash to the position of a metropolis in ancient Babylonia. The goddess Bao, the mother of Lagash, was worshipped in conjunction with other deities, including the god Ningursu, an agricultural deity, and therefore a deity of war, who has solar attributes. One of the titles of Ningursu was Enmercy, which, according to Assyrian evidence, was another name of Tammuz the spring god who slew the storm and winter demons, and made the land fertile so that man might have food. Ningursu was, it would seem, a developed form of Tammuz, like the Scandinavian Frey, god of harvest, or Heimdall, the celestial warrior. Bao was one of the several goddesses whose attributes were absorbed by the Semitic Ishtar. She was a great mother, a creatrix, the source of all human and bestial life, and, of course, a harvest goddess. She was identified with Gula, the great one, who cured diseases and prolonged life. Evidently, the religion of Lagash was based on the popular worship of the queen of heaven and her son, the dying god who became husband of his mother. The first great and outstanding ruler of Lagash was Ur-Nina, who appears to have owed his power to the successful military operations of his predecessors. It is uncertain whether or not he himself engaged in any great war. His records are silent in that connection, but, judging from what we know of him, it may be taken for granted that he was able and fully prepared to give a good account of himself in battle. He certainly took steps to make secure his position, for he caused a strong wall to be erected round Lagash. His inscriptions are eloquent of his piety, which took practical shape, for he repaired and built temples, dedicated offerings to deities, and increased the wealth of religious bodies and the prosperity of the state by cutting canals and developing agriculture. In addition to serving local deities, he also gave practical recognition to Ea at Eridu and Enlil at Nippur. He, however, overlooked Anu at Erech, a fact which suggests that he held sway over Eridu and Nippur, but had to recognize Erech as an independent city-state. Among the deities of Lagash, Ur-Nina favored most the goddess Nina, whose name he bore. 
as she was a water deity and perhaps identical with belit sheri sister of tammuz of the abyss and daughter of ea one of the canals was dedicated to her she was also honored with a new temple in which was probably placed her great statue constructed by special order of her royal worshipper like the egyptian goddess the mother of mendes nina received offerings of fish not only as a patroness of fishermen but also as a corn spirit and a goddess of maternity she was in time identified with ishtar a famous limestone plaque which is preserved in the louvre paris depicts on its upper half the pious king ernina engaged in the ceremony of laying the foundations of a temple dedicated either to the goddess nina or to the god nin gursu his face and scalp are clean-shaven and he has a prominent nose and firm mouth eloquent of decision the folds of neck and jaw suggest bismarckian traits he is bare to the waist and wears a pleated kilt with three flounces which reaches almost to his ankles on his long head he has poised deftly a woven basket containing the clay with which he is to make the first brick in front of him stand five figures the foremost is honored by being sculptured larger than the others except the prominent monarch apparently this is a royal princess for her head is unshaven and her shoulder dress or long hair drops over one of her arms her name is Lida, and the conspicuous part she took in the ceremony suggests that she was the representative of the goddess Nina. She is accompanied by her brothers, and at least one official, Anita, the cupbearer or high priest. The concluding part of this ceremony, or another ceremonial act, is illustrated on the lower part of the plaque. Ernina is seated on his throne, not, as would seem at first sight, raising the wine cup to his lips and toasting to the success of the work but pouring out a libation upon the ground the princess is not present the place of honor next to the king is taken by the crown prince possibly in this case it is the god nin gursu who is being honored three male figures perhaps royal sons accompany the prominent crown prince the cupbearer is in attendance behind the throne the inscription on this plaque, which is pierced in the center so as to be nailed to a sacred shrine, refers to the temples erected by Ur-Nina, including those of Nina and Ningursu. After Ur-Nina's prosperous reign came to a close, his son Akurgal ascended the throne. He had trouble with Uma, a powerful city, which lay to the northwest of Lagash, between the Shat-el-Kai and Shat-el-Hai canals an army of raiders invaded his territory and had to be driven back the next king whose name was enatun had napoleonic characteristics he was a military genius with great ambitions and was successful in establishing by conquest a small but brilliant empire like his grandfather he strengthened the fortifications of lagash then he engaged in a series of successful campaigns Uma had been causing anxiety in Lagash, but Enatum stormed and captured that rival city, appropriated one of its fertile plains, and imposed an annual tribute to be paid in kind. An army of Elamites swept down from the hills, but Ernina's grandson inflicted upon these bold foreigners a crushing defeat and pursued them over the frontier. 
several cities were afterwards forced to come under the sway of triumphant lagash including eric and ur and as his suzerainty was already acknowledged at eridu Enatum's power in Sumeria became as supreme as it was firmly established. Evidently Zuzu, king of the northern city of Opus, considered that the occasion was opportune to overcome the powerful Sumerian conqueror, and at the same time established Semitic rule over the subdued and war-wasted cities. He marched south with a large army, but the tireless and ever-watchful Enatum hastened to the fray, scattered the forces of Opus, and captured the foolhardy Zuzu. Enatum's activities, however, were not confined to battlefields. At Lagash, he carried out great improvements in the interests of agriculture. He constructed a large reservoir and developed the canal system. He also extended and repaired existing temples in his native city and at Erech. Being a patron of the arts, he encouraged sculpture work, and the finest Sumerian examples belonged to his reign. Enatum was succeeded by his brother, Enatum I. Apparently the new monarch did not share the military qualities of his royal predecessor, for there were signs of unrest in the loose confederacy of states. Indeed, Uma revolted. From that city an army marched forth and took forcible possession of the plain which Enatum had appropriated, removing and breaking the landmarks, and otherwise challenging the supremacy of the sovereign state. A Lagash force defeated the men of Uma, but appears to have done little more than hold in check their aggressive tendencies. No sooner had Entamina, the next king, ascended the throne than the flame of revolt burst forth again. The Patesi of Uma was evidently determined to free, once and for all, his native state from the yoke of Lagash, but he had gravely miscalculated the strength of the vigorous young ruler. Antimina inflicted upon the rebels a crushing defeat, and following up his success, entered the walled city and captured and slew the Patesi. Then he took steps to stamp out the embers of revolt in Uma, by appointing as his governor one of his own officials, named Ili, who was dutifully installed with great ceremony. Other military successes followed, including the sacking of Opus and Kish, which assured the supremacy of Lagash for many years. Entamina, with characteristic vigor, engaged himself during periods of peace in strengthening his city fortifications and in continuing the work of improving and developing the irrigation system. He lived in the golden age of Sumerian art, and to his reign belongs the exquisite silver vase of Lagash, which was taken from the Tello Mound and is now in the Louvre. This votive offering was placed by the king in the temple of Ningursu. It is exquisitely shaped and has a base of copper. The symbolic decorations include the lion-headed eagle, which was probably a form of the spring god of war and fertility, the lion, beloved by the mother goddess, and deer and ibexes, which recall the mountain herds of Astarte. In the dedicatory inscription, the king is referred to as a patesi, and the fact that the name of the high priest, Dudu, is given may be taken as an indication of the growing power of an aggressive priesthood. After a brilliant reign of twenty-nine years, the king died, and was succeeded by his son, Enanitum II, who was the last ruler of Ernina's line. An obscure period ensued. Apparently there had been a city revolt, which may have given the enemies of Lagash 
the desired opportunity to gather strength for the coming conflict. There is a reference to an Elamite raid which, although repulsed, may be regarded as proof of disturbed political conditions. One or two priests sat on the throne of Lagash in brief succession, then arose to power the famous Uru Kajina, the first reformer in history. He began to rule as Patesi, but afterwards styled himself king. What appears certain is that he was the leader of a great social upheaval, which received the support of a section of the priesthood, for he recorded that his elevation was due to the intercession of the god Ningursu. Other deities, who were sons and daughters of Ningursu and Nina, had been given recognition by his predecessors, and it is possible that the orthodox section of Lagash, and especially the agricultural classes, supported the new ruler in sweeping away innovations to which they were hostile. End of chapter 6, part 1